we're going to do some work on resilience today. And um, ah, everyone take a deep breath and just relax. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, we, I guess, you know, I've, I've done work in emotional health for a, quite a long time now and um, passionate about this area of work. And I, I just wanted to say up, up front, I'm not teaching around resilience because I want you to work harder for HTB. Uh, I want you to to do better emotionally and like for yourselves. But I don't. This isn't like a let's improve your performance and make sure you work really hard. Um, this is a you're already working really hard, and I want to acknowledge that. I think you guys are amazing, and I just want you to do better in yourselves. And that's why we're doing this piece of work. So if I sound corporate at times, it's not because I'm like trying to push you to go harder. It's just because actually we care about you and we want you to do better in yourselves. So you hear some of these terms banded around um, resilience. I call this bounce back because actually um, Ravik and Shatter in 2002 argued that resilience is the ability to bounce back from adversity and take on new challenges. So resilience is a, is a kind of coverall term for this idea of emotional bounce back. And um, bounce back is just... Um, just an acknowledgement that we get squeezed, but there's but there's there's power that can come from being squeezed. I, I got three children. One of them's not big enough yet to enjoy bouncy balls, but the other two love bouncy balls. And so when we go out, especially the science museum or something, we always have to buy a bouncy ball. And the bouncy ball lasts for about three days um, before it bounces over into one of my neighbor's uh, gardens. You know, but it's all about dissipating energy, normally their energy. Like they throw it down. And, and it comes back. But the key thing is that energy is transferred. And I, I want you to constantly be thinking today about how your energy is transferred. I would say that when energy is transferred, we are living. But when energy is consumed, that's when we're dying. So think about those two concepts. And the transfer of energy is when we're living. And when we, when we consume energy, that's when we're dying. It doesn't seem to make sense. But if you think about all living things, reaction is a key aspect of what it is to be alive. And, and this sort of emotional energy we're talking about is what, is what transfers through you and through your teams in the work that you do. Whenever you think about um, a sort of stress or resilience-based seminar, it always feels quite condemnatory. Uh, you always feel like you should be uh, the person here, like standing on the beach at work in the morning, you know, like stretching your arms in some kind of yogic pose. And, you know, you're a Christian and you're working in a Christian organization and you should feel like this. And in fact, you actually feel like this guy. Um, and and I, I want you to think hard about the idea of what it means to be resilient because whenever we categorize people, the assumption can be that actually I'm not a resilient person. Uh, I'm the sort of person who gets crushed by problems and resilient people are the sort of Zen people near me who look great, like they're not being crushed by problems. I just want you to get away from the kind of superficial assessment of the people who look super relaxed and a superficial assessment of people who look super stressed. Because in reality, they send us down the wrong direction. Sometimes the people who look super stressed are the most resilient and actually are coping better with their circumstances than the person who might be looking super chilled, who might actually be having a crisis on the inside. So think about um, this experience of resilience as being something that doesn't mean you don't experience difficult emotions. Everyone who's resilient is experiencing the same negative and challenging emotions from stress than those people who uh, look crushed by it. Everyone is, everyone is experiencing the same 
feelings. It's about how you manage those feelings and how you respond to the energy transfer that sets you apart as someone who is resilient. So um, trying to get away from the loading of the terminology. If you're in this room, you might feel like you're this guy right now. But the likelihood is you're actually probably these people, even though you don't feel like it this morning. No one actually feels like these people normally. This is a, from Photoshop. It's just totally staged. No one's life is like this. Um, and I think we need to get away from the idea that we're not winning if it doesn't look like this. So resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity or significant stress. And adaptation is a key motif in our understanding of resilience. How can we adapt to the new challenges and changes around us? In reality, holidays are a really great example of how we cannot be resilient, primarily. Because everything in the holiday environment, apart from the actual change of environment, becomes quite static. Hands up who enjoys a holiday when they do the same thing pretty much every day. If you're a summer bum, you like to, you like, yep, several people. So you like to roll out the sun lounger in the morning, and it can be early, like you put your Union Jack towel down, ready to go. Then you hit the breakfast bar and you go for the mega breakfast that kind of rolls on for quite a while. You know, that feels good. It goes on continental maybe, or you're going for the full English if you're in Ibiza. And uh, you seriously dine out till about half past 10. And then you roll back to the pool and then your towel is still there. And all the Germans are looking at you like, what are you doing? And then you, you unfurl the Union Jack. And then you, you get out your trashy Jack Reacher novel. You know, and you lie down, you order some you know, coffee or tea from the pool bar, it feels good. And then you're, then you're set, right? You're set all day. And it's like a couple of dips in the pool, but actually you're just flowing through to chapter eight, first half of the day. You nearly finish the book by the end of the day. And then it's a kind of pina colada. I'm selling this well, aren't I? <laughs> then it kind of dials back and you're like thinking, oh, six o'clock. Everyone's left the poolside now, apart from you. But that's okay, plenty of time for dinner. So, you, you know, a couple of steps to your room, get changed, then you dine again. And then the next day you do the whole routine, you know, a second time and a third time. And you get to the end of the week and you think, wow, that's amazing. I feel so refreshed. Well, you feel refreshed because there was no stress. There was no change primarily. So we become very habitual on holidays and we like to do the same thing. Many of you will find you go to the same place year on year. Why do you go back to the same place when there's a whole world to explore? You go back to the same place because not changing feels good. The challenge of work is that change is necessity for success. That actually, ultimately, we work in a changing world and in a changing environment, and our USP here is change. You know, Sandy was always saying that change, change is here to stay. Change is here to stay. And if we're resistant to change, then we're not resilient in the face of change. So that's what we want to engage with. This idea that resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of change. Now, a woman called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's a, a Swiss-American psychologist and counsellor, worked in a, um, in a uh, hospice, actually, for 20 years. She, she devised um, a, a schema that, that was called the cycle of death and dying. I'll call it the change curve. It's a bit more friendly. Um, <laughs> in 1969, she, she published On Death and Dying. Again, it wasn't a bestseller. Uh, no, I'm joking. It was actually. Uh, wasn't the most catchy title, you know. Not everyone went out there for that. But, but what she identified was actually that everyone's experience of change went through a fluctuation, a bit like a roller coaster. And that this wasn't just a grief experience. This is an experience that we go through every day when we experience significant change, particularly when we're shocked into change by difficult news. And um, if you have a look at the screen, it's quite small for you, but I'll explain. So um, 
the event experience here um, begins on what we call the active or the passive um, y-axis. The x-axis just shows you uh, the transition of time. And we begin with the event and often move initially into denial. This isn't happening. My boss isn't asking me to do this. This is crazy. Like, why are we doing this now? Uh, this new project. I thought we weren't doing anything new at HDB. Now we're doing this discipleship pathway. This is the new event that's happening. So then we move very quickly into anger. And the reason for that is that the fight or flight response, which is an endocrine response in the human psyche, uh, launches us into defense first. So when we experience change, our first response is normally defense. So we either flee, we run from it, which obviously would mean you saying, I quit, I'm out of here. Or actually becoming angry, going, I can't believe we're doing this. I'm really frustrated now because not many of us just walk out when something difficult comes up, we tend to respond initially in anger, but in a Christian way. Oh, this is great. Praise the Lord. Praise God that we're doing this. Oh, it's amazing. Praise Jesus. Um, so we get over our anger like that. Then we move Then we move into bargaining, and bargaining is, is a way of doing kind of business, trying to find an equitable way through. And it might be, oh, look, oh, I'll do, I'll do the discipleship pathway if I can give up doing focus this year. Or, you know, I'll do the new alpha booklet as long as I don't have to do the marriage course booklet as well. So we can find a way of trying to find an equitable way forward out of our anger. So that's the bargaining segment there. And then we move down into depression. And this is a statement of the kind of ground zero reality. Oh my goodness, I've really got to do all this. I can't believe I've got to do all that or deal with all of this stuff. And then we normally move out of that low phase into acceptance and what we call habituation, which is kind of the normalization of our experience. Now, on a grand scale, this stuff will affect all of you in grief and in significant life moments, but it will affect you on a lighter way in your everyday. The important thing is you don't just think, oh, I just absorb stress, oh, I deal with change without any serious repercussions. Uh, underneath us all is this same cycle of, of denial and bargaining and anger and acceptance and depression, and we kind of go through this forward, and sometimes we even go through it backwards at the same time. The key thing is you might have layer on layer of this kind of experience going on within you if you were just aware of it. I think it's important to recognize that the one thing that denotes your success in this uh, really are your beliefs. Psychologist called Chang in 1998 says that stresses are largely, our response to stresses are largely determined by thoughts and beliefs. Like how you respond to what you experience is determined by what you think and how you feel. It's a huge mistake to believe that some people have the DNA of resilience and some people don't. You can learn and develop the skills of resilience. Actually, we become part of your everyday toolkit, not just for work here at HDB, but for, for your entire life. And actually, some of the people who've been through the most difficult things you'll find are typically the most resilient. They've learned the pros and cons of, of dealing with stress and they've developed a resilience pattern moving forward. And so in simple terms, we are looking to uh, engage with what we call springback. So productive stress, which is necessary for our effectiveness, does compress us. But actually, we retain this springback, this bounce back, um, because we respond to that stress with a new load of energy. So who, who here likes new things? Is anyone real like a yes, new project person? Who, who here is a prefer not, like the same old, same old? Okay, this it's a 50-50 game. But some of you guys will find that actually a new opportunity creates a level of exciting stress, which makes you feel engaged and connected with your work. So you're like, yes, I love this new thing. I'm ready to go. 
That compression leads you to respond with spring back, which is greater than the compression you first experienced. So compression doesn't dissipate energy, it can actually maximize energy and increase more energy than what's present. So if I compress you all with a new scheme, the stress that I'm loading on you is, if you like, my stress, like my one delineation of stress. Yet I load 50 people with that same delineation of stress and I get spring back from 50 people, which is far greater than the loading of stress that I provided in the first instance. So to demonstrate, good stress can make you produce more then it seems physically possible. It creates more energy than the energy that's in the room. It's a kind of a perpetual motion. So if I drop my bouncy ball, it doesn't just bounce up to the height of my hand. It bounces higher than my hand, higher than the house, and it's in the next door neighbor's garden. So we shouldn't get, we shouldn't, we shouldn't demonize stress. And I think one of the real problems we face in the world today is that everyone's saying, oh, I'm so stressed. Like stress is a problem. Actually, maybe stress is a good thing. Maybe it's just we haven't got the right relationship with the stress that we're experiencing. And maybe there is a sort of stress which is actually very damaging. We have to be able to discern, not that we're stressed, but what sort of stress it is that we're experiencing. When we come to work and we say, I'm feeling quite stressed at the moment, that could be a good thing. I'm feeling stressed, like I'm feeling stretched and I'm ready to go. Or I'm feeling what we call destructive strain. The first definitions of stress were what called Hooke's Law, and it measured the loading on an object before it returned to its normal shape. Now, the key thing about Hooke's Law was that, was that when you worked with a piece of metal, like a spring, for example, you could extend it to a certain level, but Hooke's Law said when it reached a critical point, rather than springing back, the spring would actually break. The, stri- the spring would elongate. And so what we need to do is stay in the zone which gives a spring back but not move into a zone that leads us actually broken by strain. So think about stress as potentially being positive, but strain being the moment at which we move beyond stress into the point at which we can no longer cope uh, with the challenges that we're facing. Um, I think it's really essential to recognize that the difference between productive stress and destructive strain is nearly always manifest within our own minds. That's not to say that that, that some destructive stress isn't a universal experience. But if you, look at, if you look at people's response to PTSD, something I experienced in 2005, that there are a number of people who experience the same negative circumstances, yet have completely different emotional responses to them. So 9-11 was a great example, that some people actually sprung back really well from 9-11, and some people found the strain of 9-11 destructive and there's lots of psychological studies around the response of survivors it's true also with grief some people spring back from grief and some people find grief a, a catastrophic experience and it can feel quite judgmental when you're all going through the same sort of challenge and yet some people seem to be flying and you seem to be absolutely getting smashed it's not a judgment on you because actually we're incredibly complex and there's loads of different reasons why that's the case but i'd say primarily our thought patterns around the strain and stress that we're experiencing determine how successful or how unsuccessful we'll be as far as resilience is concerned. Emerson said what lies behind us and what lies before us are small matters compared to what lies within us and I think this is just a quote to illustrate that same point that actually whatever you've achieved and whatever you'll go on to achieve are not so important as what's going on in your own inner world. And actually, whatever, whatever challenges are coming towards you right now, what's within you is the key factor in determining that success. I, um, I was um, recovering from, from PTSD and uh, acute anxiety in 2005. And my wife 
um, said, we're going on holiday. And I was thinking about Ibiza. And I was thinking about reading Jack Reacher novels by the pool and eating English breakfasts. And she said, we're going to go trekking jungle in the jungle in Borneo. And I was like, no, we're not. And she was like, no, no, yeah, this is going to be really good for you. And I was going, no, this is so not going to be good for me. Like, that's the last thing I need. Like, being in a jungle, like about 14 hours away from civilization, like on the other side of the world, uh, like in tropical heat, where there's all sorts of kind of nasty critters that are going to potentially bite me at nighttime. That's the last thing I need. She's like, it's all right, I've already booked it. I'm like, great, okay. So I like, fly out to Malaysia, get another flight into Borneo, take a 14-hour kind of bus ride with a couple of other crazy people into the middle of the jungle. And I'm like apoplectic. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm literally like, give me the tamazapan. I'm, I, I'm completely losing it. But you know, what was really interesting was I, I realized that the challenges I was facing were all within me. The battles I was facing were not the battles of the environment. They were the battles in myself against the stress and strain that I'd been feeling. And I was more resilient than I thought I really was. And I want to say that to you all today, that you're more resilient than you believe that you are. Lots of us think we're skating on thin ice all the time, but the ice isn't half as thin as we think. I ended up really enjoying the jungle, kind of. We had a long, long boat safari because there was no path, so you had to like kind of you know weave through these tiny little water alleys in the jungle. And our guide would go, oh, "Look, there's a pit viper. That bit you, then you'd die within about 15 minutes." All oh, right, I'm feeling, <laughs> thanks. I'm feeling, feeling so much better now. Um, and we, uh, my wife was like, yeah, now we're going to climb a mountain. I was like, oh, great. really trying to send me over the edge. Did you do life insurance on me before we left? And then we climbed Mount Kinabalu, which is like the highest mountain in Asia. It's 15,000 feet. And they, they, like, they said, oh, hold on to the ropes. I'm like, what do you mean hold on to the ropes? Where's my harness? Oh, you just have to hold on here. We don't have harnesses in Borneo. Anyway, we didn't make it to the top over about three days and down again. And, and I walked away from that trip thinking, actually, there was a life-changing trip for me. Um, and it's something I'm really thankful for, even now, because whilst the strain and the stress of it was higher, I became awakened to something within me which I'd call resilience. It's an awareness that actually we can use difficult circumstances to our advantage. More than that, that God is present with us in our difficult circumstances, and that he actually can create a supernatural bounce back, uh, you know, as well as, as well as human bounce back. It's not to... I hate it when Christian leaders kind of, you know, simplify your problems. Don't worry, just pray about it. Jesus will fix it for you. You know, I, I, I have real problems, but actually God is also present with us in these times of difficulty, and he's there to strengthen us and to enable us to be awakened to what he's already placed into us. So the principle here is what I call the live-to-learn principle, and this is a principle that um, underlines resilience training. This is the attitude that says, actually, I'm living to learn. When we believe that we've got kind of a contained experience, like this is who I am, this is how I work, we typically aren't resilient. If we can change as change affects us, then we demonstrate real resilience. And the live to learn principle is actually saying, uh, how am I responding and what am I learning from these difficult experiences? So David Sabine, PhD, argues that resilient people look at the problem and say, what is this problem trying to teach me? Now, what's interesting about this strange and kind of slightly uh, disconnected and unemotive approach is that it places us in a different tangent to the problems that we're experiencing. So we're saying rather than the problem trying to break me, the problem's trying to teach me. The, tr- the problem or the stress that I'm facing is my educator. Now, we- we've all had nasty teachers at school, no doubt. My, my worst was called Jock McRae. He was uh, my physics teacher. 
He, he told us every week that he was ejected from a Spitfire in the Second World War, and that's why he was two inches shorter than he was in real life. He was very short. That's his way of explaining things. Uh, he said he said I was spitballs when he talked to you, so you had to kind of watch your eyes, you know, when he'd come round and shout at me. And uh, he always had a little bit of gob that kind of went up and down between his top and bottom lip as he talked, which I used to watch, which is why I never really did well at physics. Yeah, but, but, but my general sense of disgust and uh, dislike of Jock McRae, you know, took such a hold that I, I, I sort of personalised his attacks and I, and I became resolute that I wasn't going to learn why the fat man and the thin man went up and down on the different sets of seesaws, if you remember that. That's what they taught in my day. Um, and so I failed. I flunked because I saw the problem of the teacher and this sort of general unpleasantness of the environment as being a sort of a stress to endure rather than experience to engage and, and and when we change our approach to unpleasant and difficult circumstances and allow them to be our educator we suddenly glean benefit from them which changes our whole emotional approach we start saying actually this is unpleasant but in this circumstance i'm learning something new that is a resilient position that enlivens you because all of your perceptive beliefs about how you're going to be crushed and broken by this experience are somehow dissipated. It's not an experience you want to flee from anymore. It's a process you want to engage with. And I found in, in some of the hardest pastoral work that I've done, I've often had a guttural feeling like I want to run away. But I've said to myself, what am I learning? And sometimes, what am I preaching? If you've heard me speaking here at HDB, you'll often hear me recount horrific stories for spiritual gain like every time we go on holiday something goes wrong we are like the most oppressed holiday family uh and and, and yet every time i'm there i'm thinking the devil's not going to have this story jesus christ is going to have this story and we've done it all from being put up in a red light district in thessaloniki with the children because our plane was cancelled and being there you know my daughter's pointing to sort of naked ladies saying daddy mermaid <laughs> Ah, yeah, no, I don't think so, you know. Trying not to touch the red velour, the big, the red bath, the sunken red bath, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you to EasyJet for that one. Uh, or last year, um, having our flight, leaving the house at 4 a.m., two consecutive days for our flight to be, the 7 a.m. flight to be cancelled, two consecutive days in the trot, um, and having to explain to my daughter that actually bad things don't always happen, which is what I said on day one, and then bad things don't always happen three times thank you BA for getting us out of that tight spot but you know every time we go into a situation of disaster it can be a disaster or it can be an education so when we change our experience when we make the disasters we're experiencing an education God is always teaching us and our resilience is the bigger story. It's the saying, actually, what is God speaking over my life right now? If you're having a tough time at work, it can be like, oh, these people don't like me. I'm no good at my job. Oh, like I'm definitely failing. I'm going to get my P60 next week. Or it's actually, God, what are you trying to teach me through this difficult stress and strain? It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It's just you change your experience to what's stressing you by five degrees. And that five degrees is, is crucial for your survival. When I was at university, uh, I, I boxed for a while. And um, what I realized about boxing was that actually it wasn't how hard you could hit the other person. It was how you could change the blows the other person was raining down on you by about five degrees. That's all boxing really is. At the end of the day, one person's punch 
and another person's punch aren't that different when you get it in the face, square on the nose, especially if your nose is as big as mine. But if you can change that approach by five degrees, suddenly your nose is actually okay. And someone's blow, rather than actually breaking that nose, becomes a glancing blow that runs off of your face. Now, I learned very quickly in boxing that your movement, your position to pain, was an ultimate determining factor in your resilience in the ring. Change your position to pain, and you will change your position in the ring. Uh, I'd love to encourage you all to think about that. How can you change your position to pain? By five degrees. Often it's the difference between saying, I'm a recipient of pain, or I'm a learner through pain. That's a key lesson. Kate Middleton, who I run Minor Cell Foundation with, says uh, in her new book, um, stress describes any change which requires us to respond. And I think, again, wanting to create the biggest possible understanding of stress for you, that actually change is the key promoter of stress. Why? Because naturally, as humans, we want to be quite static. Staticity is what we believe gives us life and well-being, when actually change often is the thing that really promotes our well-being. So, Stress and change are synonymous with one another. Hans Selvey in 1936 described the stress we have today as non-specific response to, of the body to any demand for change. It's the non-specific response to any demand you have to change. But actually, staticity is also stressful. If you found yourself thinking, I am getting bored. And what happens when I get bored? When I get bored, that's when I get stressed. I start seeing more problems when I've got not very much to do than I do when I've got a whole lot to do. I find myself becoming more negative and less effective. So leadership can only be understood within the realms of change, either self-imposed or externally driven. Bill Heibel says of change, great leadership is by definition relentlessly developmental. Here at HDB, this is a kind of key value. If you're in the worship department, we're not singing GK songs anymore because someone decided to relentlessly write new songs. And you are relentlessly writing new songs. And people say, well, what's wrong with the old songs? You're saying, well, nothing really, but we are, we are created to relentlessly worship, which means always changing our position in worship to God. We're always pressing in, and we're always seeking a new position. We're, seeing, we're wanting to see him more. You know, the world is, it, it needs us to relentlessly change our approach to evangelism in order to engage with the next generation. Now, we are, need to relentlessly change our approach to pastoral care because people's needs and difficulties are constantly changing around us. So this is our, this is our decision. It's to, to deal with stress with resilience so we can continue to be effective in delivering a response to change. But when we do this, uh, we experience different stresses. So the irony of dealing with stress over the long haul is that change creates stress. And this is what's called the stress curve. There's lots, lots of different manifestations of this. Performance-wise, too little stress, we become laid back and inactive. So this is the kind of surf bum ideal um, and, you know, just chilling out, smoking a few big ones and then going, going, in, going in for a surf, you know, tiling yourself down, having a barbecue, watching the sun go down, doing it all over the next day. So there's no performance related to that kind of lifestyle. So too little stress. Then optimum stress leaves us in, in the yellow phase where we're really performing well, we're at the top of our game. But if we stay in that place for too long, we start moving into exhaustion. Now, the, the orange zone here is a zone that you can be in for some time, but it's not a zone that you can put up your tent and camp in for a long time. 
This is not. This is. This is the 70%, 30%. You've got to give 70% in the yellow and 30% in the orange. But if you do it the other way around, that's when you begin to break down. And then the, uh, the red there is the burnout zone. So this is when we've been in the exhaustion zone for so long, actually our body begins to respond. We have complex mechanisms, got endocrine system in our body. When we've been stressed for too long, we experience physiological ramifications from stress, which are panic, uh, too much adrenaline, digestive problems, um, heart palpitations, temperature differentials in hands and feet, headaches, nausea, migraines, general fatigue. Um, and you might have found yourself going to the doctor to respond to these and they've looked you up and down and said, yeah, you're totally fine. And you've gone, no, but I don't feel fine. And then they'll say something like, are you, are you having a stressful time at home or at work at the moment? And that's normally because the endocrine system starts to manifest physiologically because psychologically the red light is on. So our body's amazing in, it, in the way it deals with us in that when we're not listening to our minds, our bodies will tell us that something is a problem. And ultimately our, mind, our bodies will disable us from actually creating a catastrophe in our minds. So this is where a real breakdown takes place. And some manifestations of this can be chronic fatigue disorders, you know, psychotic breaks, um, complete nervous breakdowns. And so it can get more and more serious. Even some psychologists argue some, some physical diseases are a manifestation of stress and our bodies are attempting to close us down so we can't blow ourselves up. But the key thing here is to recognize that that actually some stress is good and that we need resilience in the yellow zone. We're going to have to go into the orange zone at times, but imagine it's like Everest. You can go up to base camp and then you can go up to camp one, but as soon as you go to camp two, you're on the edge. When you're in camp three, you're in the death zone. Camp four, you're in the death zone. On the summit, you've got about seven hours and then you've got to get down the mountain through the death zone, camps four, camp three, and then down into camp two before your body starts to recover. So imagine you can stay in camp two for quite a long time, but you cannot stay in the death zone for very long. So what's your summit ascent look like and what's your dial back look like? You have to be able to go up, but you've got to be able to come down too. 90% of people who die on Everest die on the way down. They don't die on the way up. They die on the way down. And so many times in the stress zone, people feel good on the way up and then they begin to break down when the stress comes off. It's amazing how we tend to break down when the pressure comes off. Who's found that? They've been performing really well under pressure, then suddenly it stops and you have some total meltdown. And it's like, but it's done. And it's like your body and your mind are going, oh, it's done. I can finally let go and express how I'm really feeling right now. Just have a quick break just for five minutes to talk to some of the people around you about your experience of stress and how you've responded to it. Uh, maybe you want to just talk about couple of experiences when you've had that you've been in the red zone for too long you've been up the top of the mountain you found it hard to come back down you don't need to share too personally but just just take a moment to, to decompress from just have a little chat with those around you typically when when it comes to changing the blow of stress on our experience of pain well, we, we we can maximize the pain by increasing the negative prediction so the more we negatively predict pain the more we'll experience pain and the less we um, predict a negative outcome, the more positive our outcome is likely to be. So, so you can, if you predict yourself in the red zone, you're likely to get to the red zone very quickly. You often get what you want. And if you think, ah, oh, I'm going to get in the red zone here, you're going to get the red zone very quickly. If you, if you, if you think yourself into it, you'll find it there. So, predictions, how you, how you, res your resilience is, is partly determined by the predictions that you're making. If you, if you set yourself up for a total breakdown, the chance of you reaching that breakdown place are pretty high. 
if you set yourself up for resilience, then actually your your response to stress is going to be much more reasonable. And and there are typically four four approaches in human behaviour. This is a, adapted from Van Dyke um, that that respond that demonstrate our response to change and stress. The first one is that I cannot wait for change. This is the sort of change which is like, oh, I'm going to go away on holiday, or get a new job, or there's a new project, or da 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 da. So this is the I cannot wait for this sort of change. This costs us very little at all. It costs us something, but not very much. Uh, the second change is the is the I know I have to change. This might be the internal agreement with an external reality, kind of you know getting unhealthy or unfit and knowing you need to change, or or having stuff at home dinner dinner time's not working very well. You've got to make a change. You know you've got to do something. It's not it's something that's positive, but you don't really want to do it. That costs you a little bit more, but still because the outcomes are positive, because you know it's going to be something that you is going to improve your experience of life, then you're you're more positive about taking in the pain. Thirdly, there's the please don't make me change. And this is where someone else is initiating change and there's a sense of you becoming a victim. So this might happen quite a lot at work. Someone's saying, I really need you to change this. And you're like, but I just made that. And they're like, yeah, but that so doesn't fit with our DNA. So you've got to kind of make a change. And you're like, oh, I can't believe I've got to change. Please don't make me change this again. And then finally, there's what we call chain shock. And this costs people the most. And this is completely unanticipated change. It might be an accident or an illness or betrayal. And th- this is really where, where resilience is so necessary because the costs here are so high. And many of you will have personal experiences, which we call chain shock. And it's like, ow, suddenly your whole world needs to be reordered according to this new stress. Now, in response to this, there are what are called four, these are, these are mine, but four typologies of change. So typically what you find is that, is that um, people re- categorize into four groups in response to the mountains. Uh, everyone has to get over the mountains. But the first group are what we call the dreamers. Um, sorry. So the, the dreamers are, um, the dreamers typically uh, want to float over the mountains. They're thinking, oh, I, I can see the other side. I can kind of imagine what it's going to be like. So they dream their way into existence. Imagine it's moving house. That's the mountain they've got to climb. They can see themselves in the bath with the kind of yangy lang oil and the, and the candles. And they're like, they're, they're imagining reading like Emily Bronte in the bath with candles and yelangy lang oil. And it's like they're playing their favorite classical track in the background. And they're almost in the bath the day that the removal men are coming and everything is mega stressful. Who's one of the dreamers? Some dreamers in the house? Great. Some people are like there. So their way of dealing with change and stress is to see themselves on the other side. And that's one way of managing it. The second group are what are called the drivers. The drivers are like, they are going to the mountain and they are going through that mountain. And it's like, if they can like maximize the stress, they will. If it's like they've got to move house, they'll move jobs, they'll move church, they'll get a new car and they'll put their children in new schools all at the same time. Because it's like, if I'm going to go through this, I really want to take the pain. <laughs> so you might be a driver kind of person. Now, there's energy about that because it's all about control. I'm in command of the changes that I'm making. Who, who feels like they're a driver for change? Okay, great. Then there's what we call the drifters. Now, the, the drifters are kind of, they are, they are the people who are out shopping the day that their removal men are coming. They're like, oh, I need some new jeans. I'm going to go TK Maxx. And like, they're like on the aisle. They're like going through a thousand different pairs of jeans, which are all the wrong size because they're like 39, 25 like all the jeans in TK Maxx where you know they never have the size that is normal for a normal person. 
And and they're there all day. And they're like, they've got a thousand jobs to perform, but they are so disconnected from the change. And this is about defense. They're drifting into change, going in backwards. They know it's inevitable, but they're drifting into it. So they're supremely unprepared, primarily because they don't really want to absorb or habituate the negative consequences of the experience. And finally, they're what we call the drillers. Now, the drillers are always looking for the ethical lesson. When change comes, they're trying to drill down, like, God, what's the real meaning behind this? And you're like, I only asked you to make me a cup of coffee. Yeah, well, there must be some deeper meaning. Maybe there's like some reason why you asked me to do it. Is it like a leadership lesson? I'm supposed to join LCL, right? This is it. No, I just asked you if you make me a cup of coffee. So they're always looking for this deeper kind of ethical reason why something is happening. And on one level, that's fine. But it can also be a defense against just facing the reality of what they've got to do. So it can be a way of saying, actually, I've, I've got to think my way around it. Any, any drifters in the house who feel like, oh, this is kind of me, you don't need to put your hand up. Oh, you're probably already feeling condemned enough as it is. What about drillers? Who's always looking for the bigger, the bigger thing? I've already said looking for the lesson is fine. Okay, there's a few people in the house. So the, the, key, the key point here to take is, is to acknowledge that there are benefits to all of these different styles of responding to stress, but there are also challenges. It, it, it's not about just saying, this is the way I do it, but actually we can learn lessons from one another. It might be natural and automatically for you to dream over the problem, but actually it's also healthy for you to engage with the reality of the problem. It might be good for you to like pick up the pain and really press into it, but also you need to look after yourself in the process and actually say, what are the reliefs from this strain and stress? And how can I make it as non-impactful as possible, not just for me, but for people around me? And then, actually, do I need to really engage with the fact that I feel uncomfortable right now rather than being in TK Maxx? I probably should be watching people handling my fine china and feeling a bit stressed about that because this stuff is important to me. And then, thirdly, uh, fourthly, you know, yes, there is probably a bigger picture, but I'm probably not going to know what that is until I'm actually through this difficult season. Lots of people try and avoid the pain by finding the lesson first. And actually, I'd say you've got to take the pain and then you'll find the lesson. You know, never, never just say, you know, I've seen it when children have been seriously ill in hospital. You know, the temptation is, God, what are you teaching me? And God's just saying, I just want you to love your kids right now. Don't like, don't look for the lesson in this. You know, if you've been through really difficult personal circumstances, it's like, oh, maybe God willed this for me. I always remember Barry Kissel I used to work with. He was, you know, he, he was good for finding the big lesson. He broke his neck. I'm like, God was teaching me not to be proud, but to be humble. I'm going, Barry, tell me that was after the fact. He's like, yeah, that was after the fact. It's always after the fact. God's with you in the pain, but he'll teach you something through the pain. He's going to redeem the shades of Sheol. He's going to redeem the 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 the, the dung heap, you know, this Gennesaret place, this this place of hardness that you're in. But he doesn't he's he's not he doesn't want to he doesn't want to he doesn't want you to pretend it doesn't hurt. He wants to be with you whilst it hurts, and then he'll show you what it means. And the redemption comes afterwards. And it's never because God wants to punish you. This is a great Christian problem. Oh, God's, God's doing this to me. No, God's not doing this to you. God placed all of his punishment on Christ. So you were punishment free. This is the consequences of living in a broken and fallen world. And then um, yeah, so, so to approach this with an open heart, but recognize there's a style that you'll all carry in the face of it. Oh, look, they travel. Oh, they bouncing into that one, and he's going straight down the bottom. There we go. Look at that. I must have did that one. Has some spare time. <laughs> a, a few years ago. Now, change isn't pain. 
is not always your fault. In fact, it's very rarely your fault. And and resilience in HDB requires a particular approach because actually we deal in team development as a constant experience. There is very little staticity in our team here. In fact, team turnover is one of the great challenges we face as an organization. This is Tuckman's model of um, team development. So we begin here with forming a team. Then the team begins to storm, storming, we'll come back to that in a minute, then norming, and then finally performing. Now, what's important for you to know is that the forming stage is, the, is, is, you know, this is the change stage. When my team is forming, there is change. Change requires resilience, as we've said already, and it's costly. But when you've gone through the forming stage, everyone's really nice. Oh, hi, how are you? Oh, yeah, no, I'm fine. How was your weekend? Oh, it was really great, thanks. How was yours? Yeah, it was lovely. Should we get on with our work now? And then... After about after about three months, then it's like, oh my goodness, this person is such a pain in the backside. I cannot believe it. Like I so don't want to even talk to them today. They don't want to talk to me. There's like loads of energy in the room, loads of aggression, frustration, irritation. This is what we call the storming phase. So change and conflict require the most resilience and they'll cost you the most. Very often, people in this organization go through the forming stage, then they get into the storming stage and then they leave the organization. They never find out that actually there's a beautiful place called norming. Norming, where everything's normal, where everyone like gets on and does their job well. Not great, but they do a they do a reasonable job. <laughs> they do a reasonable job. Okay, we're not staying in norming, by the way. We're a, we're an organisation that's seeking excellence. Okay, we're not staying in the norming zone. We are going to performing. I want this organisation to perform. You know, we are, we are looking for the best of the best. We want to hear represent Jesus Christ the world. We want to perform. But we are not going to be a performing organization unless we've gone through the forming, storming, and the norming phases. And we have to be resilient in the face of the fact that, actually, we can be light and forming, but actually we're not doing good work in that place. The storming, the conflict, is essential for success. And we have to see the bigger picture in our work and go, you know what, I think right now we're storming, but we're going to come out the other side, we're going to start norming, and then we're going to start performing. And here at HDB, it's important to recognize that this cycle doesn't just work once, because someone in your team is going to leave after 18 months because they found another great job in the city somewhere, and then you're going to start all over again with a new team member, which is going to take you straight back to forming, especially if you're a small team. And then you're forming again, then you're storming again, and then hopefully you're norming, and then you're performing. But you need resilience in the workplace to acknowledge these different phases. Don't walk away because there's conflict. Now, we're typically conflict averse, especially in the Christian world, but conflict is a necessary energy for your success in life. It's about turning your face five degrees to the pain, letting those blows glance off you rather than break your nose. Sorry, I have bad memories. How can we deal with conflict? Well, this is a great tool. It's called the pair conflict approach. And, um, this is a great way of you being resilient in the face of challenge. The first one is to paraphrase the facts when you're in conflict. This is about turning yourself five degrees. Paraphrase the facts. What, what is actually going on between us right now? It feels to me that this, this, and this is the case. Encourage the other person to talk. How do you feel about this particular situation? Why do you think we're not working together well? Pay attention to what they're saying and then reflect back your feelings. When both parties do this, actually conflicts is resolved very, very quickly. It's a resilient way of approaching stress because if you look, it actually is asking a bigger question, which is actually what am I learning from the circumstance and what is this person learning from me? You're actually changing it into a learning experience. Most conflict 
attempts to leave people in a static emotive block where they're basically both fuming. They're both fuming, but no one's learning. As soon as it becomes a learning experience, they stop fuming and they start growing. It's the same in marriage. Marriage is a great place to hurt each other and fume at one another. But when you turn the fuming into learning, suddenly your relationship benefits from the conflict and actually you start growing and then you start really performing as a couple. So it's about paraphrasing the facts. This is what I think is going on. Encouraging the other person to talk. Let me hear what you have to say about this. And then paying attention, not just blocking them with kind of already made up my mind and then reflect back the feelings. You seem to feel really cross with me. I feel kind of frustrated that you feel cross with me. Like I feel that you've misunderstood what I'm trying to do. What, what do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? I kind of think so, but I thought you did it because of this. Well, actually, I didn't. I did it because of this. All right, okay, let's move on from our conflict. So resilient is a pair approach. Is resilience in conflict is essential. Given the fact that Tuckman's saying we're always going to end up in conflict if we want to perform, dealing with conflict well is a primary tool in resilience. The three C's, three st- um, stress endurance that resilient people believe, the first one is commitment. What um, They believe what they do is important. So resilient people, when unmasked, deal with these three different things. Firstly, they believe what they do is important. Secondly, they believe they can influence the outcomes. And thirdly, they regard demands and stresses as a challenge. So these are three key tools for you in the face of resilience in a changing workplace. Commitment, control, and challenge. Like when you can incorporate these three approaches in a changing working environment, you'll ultimately be successful. Everything that you do is important. But some of the most stressful jobs here are jobs where you don't receive any credit and actually where no one sees what you do. Because you feel like, actually, no one values what I do, so how am I supposed to believe that it's important? Take legal, for example. Legal do loads and loads of things behind the scenes to make everything that we do safe. No one goes, oh, bring it on. A brilliant new legal contract. Like, high five you. This is amazing. right? So, So it's a thankless job, but it keeps everyone safe. So actually, it's a primary job, like being a lifeboat on, the, on a ship. No one goes around stroking the lifeboats and going, oh, nice lifeboat, good lifeboat, great lifeboat. Well, some people might, but not many people. They look at the ship and go, wow, an amazing ship. But actually, legal is like a lifeboat on the ship. Everyone will be thankful for it when the ship starts going down. And the same is true for us. When, when actually, when something goes wrong and we've got a contract in place that helps protect our work here, we'll be saying, brilliant job. But our work is often like that. Sorry, just to pick on you. But that's an example of how we need to believe that what we do is important. And, and we have to kind of re-engage with the importance of what we're doing. You can all affect the outcome. Sometimes people go, oh, it doesn't matter what I say. Nikki will decide anyway. I hate that. I hate that, not, I hate that sort of phrase, Nicky will do what he wants to do anyway, or, or you know, Trisha will do what she wants to do anyway. That's not true. Actually, the leaders of the church are distilling the wisdom of hundreds of us to then make good decisions, and they're seeking God's wisdom and the wisdom of the PCC and, and people in business and finance and all sorts of different areas to get to make good decisions. They're not unaccountable, and they're not making decisions aside from your influence, And so don't believe that you have no power to control outcomes. And in your own setting, see the significance that you have in the workplace. That that makes you resilient. You you can change the outcome. And then the challenge bit, which we've already discussed. You regard demands and stresses as a challenge. It's a hard challenge, but it's a challenge that you can use to overcome adversity. The worst way you can work is what we call inability and resilience, inflexibility and resilience. If you're inflexible in your mental state, you will never find resilience. 
this is actually from a social worker who says, you know, in the morning I can fix this. They don't cover this at school. I could write a book about this. Oh my, I can't help this one. Just when I think I heard it all, this one screwed up their life. Will this day ever end? Uh, where do I begin with all this? This is the kind. These are the kind of classical thoughts of a social worker on a, you know, during a Monday, and and this these can be our thoughts too. Out of control, chaotic. I'm disempowered, unable to help. See circumstances as being beyond my reach. Actually, ultimately, social workers have a terrible record as far as resilience is concerned and don't survive very long uh, in the workplace. Um, and this can largely because we all think it's about us. You know, when you're dealing with people, colleagues, and particularly congregants, it feels very personal. Now, I might preach, I might spend weeks preparing a sermon. I guarantee you that someone will come up at the end and go, oh, I really didn't like that talk. Um, you know, when I was reading my Bible, I, I picked up this verse and this verse, which you didn't even mention. That's because that wasn't the reading for this week. No, but, you know, we should really give this, this should this. And, you know, I did a conference recently and uh, I went to Huddersfield, which is literally, it's like so far away. I thought... I thought the conference, the conference was, I was supposed to be speaking in Birmingham and then Huddersfield. I thought Huddersfield was like a small town outside Birmingham. And then I checked it on Google Maps and it was like twice as far as Birmingham. And I had to leave at four in the morning and I had to preach at a men's breakfast in Huddersfield. They had trombone worship, which was incredible, only in the north. And then I, I, I spoke my heart out for about 45 minutes and then this guy took me to the side and he basically preached at me for 20 minutes. You know, and I, and I felt so disheartened. You know, you think, and, and I thought, oh, Lord, you know, I should just get on the, on the train and go home. I had to go to another venue in Birmingham and do the whole thing again. And I really lost my confidence. But then I was on the train and God just said, you know, it's not all about you. Just what, that guy probably had a really bad day. I was thinking it was pretty early to have a bad day. It was like a breakfast. <laughs> I mean, he was having a really bad week. You know, but it's not all about you. And actually, it went great. And loads of guys in Huddersfield thought it went great. But I didn't hear that because I just thought it was all about me. So, resilient people depersonalize the attacks of others. Uh, in, and I always think, assume other people are fighting battles that you cannot see. Spend another five minutes just in your groups, just, just chatting with some of the people around you about an experience where you've personalized the pain, but you found out later that actually it wasn't about you at all. You know, I keep coming back to this idea of resilience being about how we, how we engage with the stresses, the change, the pressures of life. And just the old adage of when life gives you lemons, you should. Let's have a few of these. When life gives you lemons, you should. Make lemonade. Make gin and tonic. That's the one I like. Make a pancake. Squeeze it. That's one way of working. Sell, sell lemons. Yeah, great. Barbara Fredrickson, uh, psychologist, argued that positivity, uh, in her book Positivity in 2009, resilient people are characterized by an ability to experience both negative and positive emotions. They mourn losses and endure frustrations, but they also find redeeming potential or value in most challenges. It's this whole idea of finding redeeming potential or value in most challenges. And actually, statistically speaking, Christians are more resilient per head of population. So actually, we we are, um, in, well, I should say members of faith groups, but particularly I believe Christians have a view that because of the narrative of forgiveness, because of our understanding of God's redemption, 
we have a redemptive view which makes us unnaturally positive compared to the rest of society. I'd say as as a priest who's been who's done funerals for the last 14 years, I could tell you without asking any questions whether a funeral is Christian or non-Christian. Just through the atmosphere, I could tell you. I could tell you whether there's hope imbibed in it or whether there's desolation imbibed in it. And and I'd say working with people who've been bereaved, the same is true. When they know that they're the person that they've lost is 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 love Jesus and is going to go to heaven, they are filled with hope as much as they filled with with despair and loss. So when life gives you lemons in in, in HDB, it's about trying to again adjust your approach to the stress and strain and recognize that there is something here that's of benefit to you. There's something which God is going to be bringing out of this experience, which is going to transform you or educate you or liberate you in some way. And um, and, and, and that, that in itself is such a powerful narrative. As soon as we become desolate, we begin to catastrophize our experiences, it all becomes, oh my goodness, life is, is lost. There's still some sense, though, in the idea we need to engage with what we call the three-to-one rule or the 75% rule. Fredrickson, in her book Positivity, goes on to suggest we need a three-to-one ratio of positive to negative experiences, not just to be resilient, but also to thrive in life. Now, I say this is true for connect groups. I always say you can carry 30% of your group could be struggling with real health or mental health problems, but as soon as it's 50%, the whole group will fold and die. The connect group is over. Forget it. I never believe we should be pooling unhealthy people, I use that term with caution, uh, in a sort of silos and say, let's take everyone who's got major problems, we'll put them over here in the special group at Alpha for special guests and everyone else can have a normal experience. Life's not like that. Everyone's going through some weird stuff and we need to share out that weird experience and actually it's the health and well-being of the people who are having an easy time that will help lift the people who are having a hard time and actually, this kind of ratio of balance means that everyone becomes resilient and everyone actually thrives well. So I, I never want our church ever to be selective in choosing bright, shiny people who are middle to upper class and university educated, you know, or mono-ethnic kind of group of people who, you know, wear the same clothes, sing the same songs, like the same things, because that's not resilient. It's not healthy for anyone. Actually, life is hard. And we need to share health and well-being. But we need to be sensible in ourselves about making sure that, that whilst times are hard, we're getting in our tank some things which are also good and life-giving. That's why if, you, if your life revolves around work, then you will ultimately live or die by the, by the goodness and well-being of your workplace. That's why you need to have exercise and friendship and other things we'll come on to in a minute but one thing can particularly cost us a lot and this is what I call drive states now I don't like personality identifiers particularly although you might have talk, heard me talk about bioenergetics and there's a colors that I think are okay what I'm much more interested in is understanding what makes you tick and I would say that there are three drive states. When we understand our drive state, we can build resilience in response to what we understand about ourselves, which is the one factor that doesn't necessarily change wherever we go. I would say if, you, if you're part of this seminar, you've signed up for this seminar, you've also signed up for a lucky draw, and we are the winners of a cruise. Hooray! I was feeling good about that, and some not so good. Um, 
Okay, so there's three questions which which we are immediately asking. We're going to try and identify them in the room now. So there's three questions. Um, there might be subtypes of the same questions, but let's answer those questions. What question are you asking right now? Right, number one, where are we going? That's the first question. Will I get bored? That's a sublimated version of another part of the question. Try another question. Who are we going with is number two. And the third one is a little bit more hidden. How are we going to get there? Now, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's the same. Okay. Okay, right. Now, just, just, just to note, we've basically answered, we've basically answered the three drive state questions within five answers. That's pretty good. The first was absolutely right. The first drive state is what we call the adventurer. Drive state one, vision orientated. That is where am I going? So on the cruise, the first drive state is the person who says, where am I going? They're naturally adventure orientated, hence they're the captain on the bridge. They're looking out and ultimately what they're interested in is the destination of their activity. That's what they're really buzzed by. Now, you'll have one primary drive state and one secondary, but the tertiary one does not fit within your psychological profile. So there's one that you really like get, there's another one that you kind of like, but the other one revolts you, okay? The second drive state is the who am I going with? And this is the caregiving drive state. And this is primarily relationship orientated, hence all the people on the ship in the canteen. So some people would say they don't care about the destination of the cruise. What they care about is who they're on the cruise with. So the primary people-orientated people. Who, who would say that they're a drive state two person? Quite a few of you. Thirdly, we have the lifeboats question, which is the process question, which is actually who's manning the engines? Are there stopovers? Are there lifeboats? Do I, what do I need to bring? How long is it going to take? Um, do I need any special equipment for the journey? Um, what factor sun cream should I use? Uh, these are process-based questions. And the activity, this is activity-orientated drive state. So these are process people. Who's, who would say they're drive state three? Okay, great. So the three drive states are adventurer, carer, and processor. Three drive states, which everyone falls into. Identify your, your primary drive state. What is the first thing? It's not about what you can do because you can all do all of those things. Otherwise, you wouldn't be on a Starfare HDB. You can do them all and you can probably do them all brilliantly. It's about what gives you life. If it was your holiday, what would kind of be like, yeah, I would go on a cruise alone just if I could go to Barbados. Or I, wouldn't, I would go on a cruise to Bognor Regis as long as I was with all my friends. Or actually, I'm kind of... I, I mean, it's great that we're going to Barbados. And it's great we're going with friends, but I'm, I, I like the process. Like, I want to, I want to kind of engage in the whole thing. You know, what are we going to do every day on a cruise? That could be like boring. I'm going to do a timesheet of activities. We're going to play coits because I've always wanted to learn what coits is. Sounds amazing. On deck, you know, with those shuffly things, and like, is there, you know, can I? Is there, is there a cinema? I can watch films. So someone's already thinking about the, they're already thinking about the timesheet for the activities that they're going to engage with. Not their friends aren't important, but they, they're just thinking detail. So identify your primary and then your secondary. Now, typically what happens is that adventuring types find processing quite frustrating. 
So you're in the workplace and you're like, yep, I want to smash this vision for children and youth. And then another person who seems to be annoying and blocking and derogatory and like a problem, a faithless, like problem orientated kind of person comes over and then they say something like, but you haven't thought through like, you know, the, the, the children's communion implications of this activity and, and also like the, the login system is not good. How are they going to get their passport for the group and also do this? And, and you go home and you feel absolutely furious about them and you pray the Lord would smite them down. So th- then, there's, then, then, you know, so it might be the adventurer is not adventuring and processing. It might be. But, but then it'll be the, there'll be the person who says, oh, but, you know, if we introduce this new event, all of the people who are doing this event are going to feel that you're trying to do something to outsmart them. and They're not going to feel involved and included anymore. And you'll go, but I want to run this new event. But they'll say, but, but they won't be included and they'll be hurt. And we'll have to go through a whole pastoral process to like listen to their pain. And that's the care-orientated person. So I want you to think in your own minds about what your primary drive is and then what your secondary drive is, but also try and identify the drive that you find most frustrating. Once you've identified your drive, you go into a, a cost-based analysis of resilience. Now, what I'd argue is that using your primary drive, using your primary drive state is a plus one experience. So in the face of stress, using your primary drive state gives you one point of benefit. Using your secondary drive state gives you equal benefit, so you don't gain or lose. But having to use your tertiary drive state costs you minus one. Now, if you're in a role where you're constantly being forced to use your tertiary drive state, your resilience levels are going to drop significantly over time. So if you're an adventurer and you're being asked to do a process-based role as your primary role, you're in the wrong role. Uh, If you're a carer and you're being asked to perform effectively an adventuring role as your primary role, then actually you're going to suffer long-term. Particularly hard if actually it's your tertiary drive state that's your primary outworking. So if you're actually an adventurer and you're being told to do a process job, or if you're actually a carer and you're, you know, you, you hate processing and, and you're doing a process job, you can tell which, which one I find hard. <laughs> Sorry, processors. So there's a drive state ratio that says, actually, two-thirds of my time, or at a ratio of one to three, I should be using my positive drive state versus my negative drive state. But this is also true, not just in your own outworking, but also in your interactions with colleagues. If you're being forced to work very closely with someone who opposes you in drive state, without an acknowledgement of how you work and how they work, you'll ultimately be cost an awful lot emotionally. Because you're, you're constantly going to come up against the adventurer if you're a processor. Or if you're a processor, an adventurer, you're gonna, you, know, you might come up against the carer. We have to make compromise. The key thing here is, is actually acknowledging you're finding it difficult because what drives and motivates you is different to what drives and motivates someone else. So your resilience can be hugely increased and improved by an application of your drive state to your primary outworking. And you can say to your team boss, look, I'm a processor. You've got to give me more process-based work for me to thrive. I can do the caring work, but actually I need to do more process-based work if I'm going to really fly in this team. Or actually, I'm an adventurer. I need to identify vision and deliver vision and you're you're pushing me 90% of the time through this process-based role, and, and actually just doesn't work with my with my, my personal state. I'm not I'm not growing. I'm not thriving as a result. 
So your drive state indicators can be a key tool to understand why you're not thriving. They can also be a key tool for you to unpick why someone else is particularly annoying to you, which can change your experience of the punch by five degrees and therefore help you to be more gracious towards them and towards yourself. And if you're in a relationship with someone, this can really work at home. If you're in a romantic relationship or if you've got children, it can really help you to understand. It's a, it helps you to understand why certain children and adults function in a particular way. It's all about lighting up the gifts that God's given them and realizing that actually there's a cost to them lighting theirs if yours are opposing. So that's the drive state ratio. Alongside that is what we call an explanatory style of resilience. So there's a permanence factor. You see the effects of bad events as temporary rather than permanent because often they're an outworking of someone's drive state. There's a pervasiveness. You don't let setbacks or bad events affect, uh, you other, uh, affect other unrelated areas of your life. So you're saying, this is, just, this is just this, and this doesn't mean I'm a disaster. Like, um, at home, like we have three children, things often go wrong all at the same time. And so I go home, and it'll be like, the dishwasher's broken, the fridge is broken, the child's got a finger stuck down the drain, there's food everywhere, and I'll say things like, I'm just a terrible father. In fact, I'm a total disaster. <laughs> what am I doing? Why am I even here, Lord? You know, and you kind of, the whole thing crumbles because it's just a catastrophe of everything. So this pervasiveness and this personalization, don't blame yourself when bad things occur. Recognize it's a full picture. A couple more slides before we finish and we're going to have a break and then just a few questions before we finish. But recognize how you respond to these within your own style of drive state because the adventurer, the processor, and the carer will respond to all of these explanatory styles in different ways. What is primary resilience? It's having friends. Not necessarily these friends, but it's having friends. Now, every psychological study has suggested that your interpersonal relationships are the primary protection against emotional breakdown. If your work is all about colleagues and not about friends, then your work is going to cost you a lot more than if you foster and develop healthy relationships on the staff team. If your lunch hours are spent looking into your iPhone rather than looking into the eyes of a friend, then you're costing yourself something significant when you could grow something beautiful. If, if you work late every day at the expense of good relationships, then you're costing the relationships at work because you haven't got any relationships at home. You need to invest accordingly. Like Ultimately, friendships cost you something, but they give you far more back. Like Your resilience ultimately your primary resilience is determined by the relationships that you have in your life and 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 it's important that you can acknowledge that that investing in those relationships is good for you but it's also good for everyone here on the team because if you're in a good place then they're going to be in a better place too holistic resilience is addressing the physical emotional mental and spiritual state of a person and there's loads of different ways you could do that obviously fitness uh, mental training, um, calming, meditation, values and beliefs, empathy. These are this is a 360 degree approach, and and really, I'm not so interested in the detail of this, but asking you to create a detailed plan for your resilience based on what you now understand about yourself. So it's about you creating a resilience plan for each one of you moving forward. How can I be more resilient, and how can I manage stress better? This was a um. A fantastic advert from Sony Bravia from a couple of years ago. I'm going to show you it in a minute to help you just relax. But this was just a state of um, 
just as just an image to help you to acknowledge like that energy needs to dissipate through movement it's a it's a it's a the principle of jock mccray my spittle based uh raf pilot physics teacher he's the one thing he taught me that that actually that that energy needs to dissipate through movement how is the energy of work and challenge and pain and stress dissipating through your movement? How, how is it flowing through you? And how can the spring back be a benefit to you and not a curse? Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this great prayer. God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed and the courage to change the things that should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. I'd say the great change today is just about saying, God, I want to turn my face five degrees. I want to find a new way to approach stress and strain. And I want to let, let the, the, the blows glance off of me and not break my nose. I'm ready to, to move God. And if there's something you want to change in me, that's the primary change I want to see today. It's just, uh, just like you to sort of sit back for a minute. We're just going to enjoy, uh, hopefully, uh, just for a few minutes before we if we have some questions. I'd love to answer some questions around, um, around this topic or any, any other sort of emotional mental health topic that you've, anything you found helpful. Um, and uh, just, yeah, just to kind of wrap things up. Um, yeah, please, hello. So it's a really good question. Actually, um, I would describe my life as, um, as I would describe my life before to, <laughs> to a psychologist who I work with, uh, as as a, a, a journey between climbing up the stairs to the high diving pool, uh, standing on the uh, on the diving board, bouncing up and down for quite a long time, and then kind of belly flopping off the top and then disappearing to the bottom of the pool, and then spending three or four days trying to find which way is up, then swimming to the surface, swimming to the side, climbing out again, and doing the whole thing over and over again. And I was trying to work out how can I? I like climbing up the stairs. I like going onto the high diving board. I don't really like diving off, and I certainly don't like swimming around at the bottom. How can I, how can I make that bit, the come down bit, less painful? And I think um, the first thing is, when you're charging up the mountain, you have to pace yourself. I get a sort of an unnatural energy when I'm pumped by some new project, which, which makes me work harder than I should work. And I think, oh, I'll pay the price for it later. But of course, I will pay the price for it later. So actually, we tend to um, throw away self-care when we're engaged in an activity that fuels us. So if you're an adventurer naturally, and you're undertaking an adventure-based activity, you're likely to give away self-care for the sake of doing something you really love. So if there's a project at work, you're like, yes, I love this. I'm going to work so hard and work so late. I'm not going to take lunch breaks because I'm activated by it. When you come down the mountain, you're actually going to feel quite deflated. So you've, you've received all your benefits early and you need to save some for later. On, on Everest, the key thing was to keep oxygen canisters like stored on your descent. But what so many people did was they, put, or, or they would use their oxygen on the way up to get to the top and forget that they needed oxygen to come back down again. And so very often they would have survived if they had an oxygen canister left, but so many of them didn't because they'd used it to get to the top. And I'd say emotionally, many of us use all of our oxygen to get to the top and don't save anything for the way down. Ways in which you can you can come down well. One is um, obviously one is pacing yourself to the top of the mountain. The other one is making sure that your 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 stable routines are retained. So that's not the intensity, but the timings that you keep in terms of work flex. I'd also say that I would always plan something positive socially after you've achieved something megalith in the workplace. 
So give yourself a treat or reward. Humans work very well on a reward-based schema. So if there's a film you want to watch, put, have it in the diary for like three days after you finished a big project. Don't, don't lose sight of giving yourself gifts as a way of managing your stress and strain. Obviously, you can schedule time off or time in lieu. But I think emotionally, it's also really important to to dialogue through some of the challenges that you faced on the journey because even successes cost you emotionally. And it might be talking to a colleague or a friend. Very often I just think journaling is a really, really healthy way of managing some of the emotions on the way down, reflecting back on your experiences. And Pritchard and Bell did something called the cycle of learning. And it basically is a corkscrew of learning. So you 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 try you look at what you've achieved, how you feel about what you've achieved and what the learning points are for the next go that you have and it helps you just to reflect it's just a simple thing just to draw a corkscrew and try and identify the benefits and what you've learned and what you've gleaned and that in itself can be about bringing cognitive awareness to life on the journey of stress and strain i also think simple things like eating and drinking well um people tend to binge when they're under lots of stress they eat lots of sugar-based foods mcdonald's suddenly becomes appealing you know coke loads of energy drinks all these things are psychologically detrimental I would go through a, I'd go in, into health in a big way when I'm under lots of stress. Eat healthier, cut out all the, all the, all the sugars that you crave, um, and, and, and look after yourself in that, in that kind of new way. And I think the one thing that Christians always try and deny is how much anger that they feel. It's like anger is wrong. Anger is totally right. Um, anger is the opposite of happy as an emotion. It's one of only four core emotions in our human schema. Um, everything else is an elaboration of the four core emotions. And so being angry is very normal. Expressing that anger in some way is also really healthy. And lots of people become very depressed or very low because actually they feel very frustrated or angry and they haven't been able to express it. And you do box size or kickboxing or, or shout into the wind or throw bouncy balls down a hill. But get rid of, do something that kind of, ah, I want to shout, you know, want to do something to like let it all out. You feel so much better. Great. Other things. I mean, it's a bit what I said earlier on, that your body will kind of play catch-up on on its deficit when you're out of the stress zone. Um, and obviously, the best thing you can do is offer yourself good self-care throughout the year. So when it comes to stopping, it's not like a sudden break-off and now suddenly I'm ill. I'm, I noticed with children, my children from school, term ends and they suddenly will get sick and you're like, well, we're just going on holiday now. How, how unfair is that? But it's like they've they've overused themselves to the point where actually their bodies their immune their immunity is basically low. I'd say multivitamins are really important to like look after yourself to keep your immune system good. Sleep is hugely underrated, and I think good sleep over the long haul ultimately is 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 your brain only actually rebuilds itself in during REM sleep. So the the your, your chief operating system only has time to recover itself and to regrow itself when you're actually asleep. And that's REM sleep, not like light sleep. So it has to be deep, dream-laden sleep. So I think blackout blinds are really helpful. Um, negotiating with your partner for having a lie-in once a week. Uh, doing, you know, looking after your sleep. Make sure it's good quality sleep. And always sleep every hour before midnight is worth two hours after midnight, psychologically speaking. So if you, have, if you go to sleep at 10, uh, you've got basically four hours you're getting um, before midnight, even though you're you're only really you know getting to two in material terms, you're actually getting four, um, and that makes a big difference. It works because your the way in which your sleep patterns work, which are forty five minute REM, REM cycles, work better before midnight, 
um, because of the way we we actually we used to we used to have two sleeps, not one. Now we just have one sleep, and so if you link together two cycles before midnight, there it's yourself. There four cycles. Then you would naturally wake, and then you would have another night. But we only have one night because we have electricity. So in London, there used to be two nights. So you go to bed when it gets dark. You get up again later, have another meal, um, and mess around with your mates, and then go back to bed again. Hence the siesta in Spanish countries is still a vestige of two sleeps. We only have one sleep, but that's not so good for us. So if we had two sleeps, you'd even be better still. Anyway, we could digress into sleep fight hygiene. Yes. <laughs> two sleeps are good. Yeah. Um, I think too much sleep is not a good thing because it tends to reduce in quality. But I think um, that typically early, earlier sleep is better, as I've said. And um, a, 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 the key thing about what we call sleep hygiene, which is the it sounds odd, but the, the 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 psychological term for sleep is called sleep hygiene. And sleep hygiene is about how it's not how clean you are; it's about how ordered your sleep is. Okay. And um, what various studies have shown that it's not so much the timing, but it's about the the meticulous routine in which you go to sleep that affects how you sleep. So if, for example, you were doing a brilliant sleep hygiene regime, you'd go to bed, you'd have a bath at about half past nine with like some lavender oil. Okay. Okay, this is the deal. Okay. If I was being really prescriptive, I'd say you have zero caffeinated drinks after three o'clock in the afternoon, no caffeine after 3 p.m. You eat between five and seven, and but no later than seven. So you're not digesting when you're actually going to sleep. You bath at half past nine, you read from about 10 till 10.30, you'll sleep by 11, that way you get two hours of good quality sleep before midnight, and then you sleep through, you might wake and drink a glass of water at three, but you basically sleep through, and then you wake at seven, and you're out of bed by half seven. That would be like an optimal sleep hygiene regime. But what you're not doing is using any blue screens in your bed, um, you've blacked out all the light in the summer and in the winter, you haven't got any LEDs anywhere in your room, which will all interrupt your sleep. Amazingly, even though your eyes are closed, um, you allow significant airflow. Uh, so you don't allow your temperature to go higher than your normal 37 degrees, which often happens to people when they're sleeping because they're overcovered. It's too much heat. There's not enough airflow. And if you can optimize your sleep, basically your mental health will improve significantly. Um, if you lie in bed, after 9am, your sleep quality will drop significantly earlier in the night, which is when you actually need the sleep. So you, re you receive very few gains from a lie-in, psychologically speaking. You just feel lazy and lethargic, but you don't feel better. If you have an earlier sleep that's of a higher quality and you get out of bed at 7, you'll feel great for the day, but you won't feel, um, you won't feel good if you have a lie-in. Emotionally, you'll find that there are two dips in the day. So normally, between half past 9 and half past 10, people feel low. And they often pep themselves up with that morning tea, biscuit, or something like that. They feel psychologically depressed at between half past nine and half past ten. They often feel psychologically depressed again between half past four and half past six in the afternoon. And then they go in for a big dinner and they feel better after 6.30. But it, it's amazing. I mean, this is partly, it's partly nutrition-based, as we have quite significant sugar lows after the night and our breakfast hasn't yet been digested. But it's also about our own sort of rhythms in the day and how we feel relating to what we have ahead of us. So people feel that there's a mountain ahead of them at half past nine and they feel like they've climbed a mountain at half past four.
but the bit in the middle is the bit that we normally feel okay. Interestingly, creative-wise, the center of the day is called freewheeling time. It's when you're least creative and you're most rationally driven. But there's a, a, something called morningness and eveningness, which are the two states of greatest psychological creativity. So if you're a poet or a writer or a musician, the best thing to do is to get out of bed at about half past five, have a massive coffee, but don't eat anything, and then start writing. All of your dream state will mean you're most creative then, like Keats, Byron, Shelley, um, you know, Graham Greene, <laughs> you, you name it, they're all there. At like the Beethoven, Mozart, uh, Proust at like 5.45, um, Ernest Hemingway naked in front of his window, window at 6am every morning, drinking coffee and writing The Old Man of the Sea. So like all of the creative stuff is happening super early when we're almost in dream state. But when you get to about 11 o'clock, your brain hard lines. And so you just, you're just rational. Never try and do anything creative in the middle of the day. You'll notice that you go to the bank in the middle of the day, but don't try and paint a picture. And then eveningness is when... Eveningness is when you go into this next state of creativity. So often people will find, like Ben was, said to me, he'll find that he gets into a song at about half past four in the afternoon. He's thinking, damn, I've just written this song. Now I've got to go home and look after the kids. And he actually, what he wants to do is stay in the studio till like nine at night because that's where it's all really happening. So it's pointless trying to be creative in the middle of the day. This all happens with our sleep cycles and our endocrine and our nutrition. And um, so there's different states of being, which basically denote different states of creativity or rationalism and that that that's all I moved sorry that's a bit of a digression but it might help you to it might help you to realize why you're do you're doing great stuff at different I, I write so I write at night um so I'll often find I'll get into a flow about seven o'clock I might write till I could easily write till midnight but Lou will like kick me if I'm still at my computer but nine o'clock gotta watch some rubbish on Netflix um <laughs> So I can just about get away with two hours, you know, I could get away with two hours or something then. But that's when I'm, that's when all, you know, all my ideas like are coming at that time. But other people are different. I, I, any other things about this? Is, this is, is this interesting? We've got a few more minutes. Yeah, I mean, church is a hospital. So it's a bit like being a doctor, I guess, in a way that you don't go to hospital to find well people. You go to hospital to find sick people. And so, but we can measure the, we can measure we don't we i think we need to start measuring the health of the hospital by the health of the people in the hospital and start measuring it by the way in which the people are being transformed so in hospital you measure someone came in with pneumonia and they got better now when they leave the hospital they're not like jumping around you know doing arab springs because they've just had pneumonia they're still in recovery but but they're better than they were and i think in church that's also true that we tend to think we, we, when we think about church, we can sometimes think everyone needs to be great. And actually, people are pretty messed up, but they're better than they were. And so I want, you know, I think, in, I think in, as a mentality, we need, to, we need to think about that, that actually we need to be better at welcoming, about recognizing illness and seeing recovery. Um, and I think aspects of that recovery for me are, are the community value is, it, take away Jesus and all the spiritual stuff. If we just had a massive club where people loved one another, everyone would be better because community is a primary tool in emotional recovery. And as I said, if you have friends and colleagues and you have a sense of a higher power, you're better off generally. Um, so all of that is a benefit. Bring Jesus into the mix and all that he does in the Holy Spirit, that's all, you know, that's the super plus. There's like loads and loads of amazing stuff happening there. On the fringes, I mean, I run all the pastoral courses, so like dealing with depression, 
post-abortion healing, divorce and separation recovery. I'm responsible for all, all of those things. And I love that stuff because it really makes a difference. Um, and then we've got the ACB counselling partnership and we've got all of the social transformation work like caring for ex-offenders and um, cross-light debt counselling service and the shelters. And, and they're, they're areas where we, if you, if you, if you pull back the veil, there are areas where we see accelerated transformation. In the general congregation, I think connect groups are the place to imbibe more emotional health understanding. And I think sometimes the greatest pain that people experience in church is a feeling of exclusion or rejection. And that, that really breaks my heart that people feel like um, the church is a hard place rather than a, a, an entry-based place. And there's lots of aspects of that that I find hard. I think I want to see a church that's racially inclusive. I want a church that's generationally inclusive. I want a church that's inclusive of people with mental health problems and disabilities, as well as people from every echelon and background. So that welcome, in my mind, is a key marker of our well-being. And so as much as all this stuff is kind of interesting, we'll keep plugging this in, but I, my biggest question is always, like, how can we make our welcome bigger? Because it seems to me that the prodigal ran home to a welcome, and that was the healing. The healing happened in the welcome. Like everything else was a benefit. I'm sure he had like loads of problems he had to deal with and like loads of issues back in the house. But ultimately, it was the welcome that brought him the healing. And I just, I want to see an increase in the welcome to see people kind of, yeah, the, just that, just the feeling of coming home. I mean, however broken you are, however like much mess there is in your head or in your heart. When you feel like you're welcome despite yourself, that's like the most healing experience in life. And when people don't judge you or exclude you because you're a mess, that's that's an incredible thing. So I'd like more of that. <laughs> that's, the, that's the bit we want to fan to flames. Hey, you guys have been amazing. Um, I've probably rambled, but it's been fun doing it with you. And uh, I think we've, we've got some lovely lunch to go to now. Um, so thanks so much for being here.